Well, it is with a gladdened heart as well as a grieving heart that we now continue our study uh, entitled Worship That God Rejects. Worship That God Rejects. And that is a sobering title, is it not? It's a sobering thought made only more so by the fact, the realization that most of what is called worship in American churches is in fact a worship that God rejects. And God rejects it because it is tied to a pseudo-gospel in which obedience has been modified, redefined, in order to accommodate the teachings and the agenda of men. That is a sorry state, folks. It's true, it's, it's, and, and it's symptomatic of a greater rebellion, but it, its effects on you is what concerns me. Not only should we be jealous for the glory of God and his glorious holy name and the glory of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, we also have to be aware of the fact that some kind of a pseudo-gospel is lifeless. It is powerless. It cannot bring about the wholeness of character and the um, healing into your life that is so desperately needed within the average Christian today. So I began the first episode, the first message, by telling you that it is our mission here at Encounter Recovery Ministries to make known how the gospel heals from trauma, the leading symptoms of which are codependence and addiction. Now, this is a universal question. So if if you don't think that you're recovering from trauma or you don't feel like codependence and addiction applies to you, uh, please stay tuned. Please stay with me because these are universal conditions. The fact that we focus on those who are recovering from some kind of um, complex trauma, some kind of developmental trauma, or some kind of an event trauma, whether it's a um, a, a exposure to violence or the loss of a loved one or the a, a accident, something that happened to you that was very traumatic to you. Uh, it, it, it happens to all of us. We are all living in a fallen world. And therefore, we are all recovering from some degree of trauma. And that trauma cannot help if left untreated, if left unhealed, produce a lot of behavior, including addictive behavior, for which there seemingly, at times, is no remedy. And so we can have all kinds of uh, celebrate recovery. We can have all kinds of uh, Christian recovery groups, and we can write books about it, and we can have uh, Facebook pages dedicated to it, so on and so on. But unless we have a gospel, the gospel, the apostolic gospel, by that I mean the gospel that produces life, the gospel that gives life, reconciliation, and wholeness to lost and broken people, then we don't have the gospel. We have some other pseudo-gospel. 
And so we are looking at 1 Samuel 15 and the sin, the rebellion of Saul. But let me just tell you, before we begin, I just want to preface my my, uh, message today with the reminder that the taproot of all human trauma is the alienation that comes about as a result of sin. So, you don't have to be, quote-unquote, in recovery to be able to benefit from this series. You just have to be human. And so, I trust that you are that. And to some degree then, wherever you're at on the continuum from 1 to 10, you are suffering on some level. You need healing. There is no one that doesn't need the healing touch of our risen Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. So the taproot of all human trauma, to whatever degree, is this alienation that sin brings about. And that's an alienation from God, from ourselves, and from others. It's a willful state of rebellion for which only the gospel of Christ is the remedy. So, this inability, and I think this will touch you, this inability to form and maintain loving, healthy, though not perfect, relationships is a leading symptom of sin's reign through the flesh. Let me say that again. The inability to form and maintain loving, loving, healthy, though not perfect, relationships is the leading symptom of sin's reign through the flesh. What we long for the most is to form and maintain healthy relationships. And what we are least able to create is healthy relationships. And there's the human dilemma. And this is practical, the practical effects of sin within humanity. Power, dominance, abuse, immorality, greed, violence, on a human level, all stem from this innate rebellion to our Creator. So if we don't have a gospel that fully reconciles and fully restores us into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit, and then empowers us by that same Spirit to be able to uh, adopt and form some level of healthy, life-giving relationships, healing relationships, then we don't have the gospel. As simple as that. Isolation, loneliness, regret, grief, depression, Anxiety, pain, all of these are symptomatic of the fallen human condition. So the good news is that God has in his Son accomplished reconciliation by the cross. And resurrection and ascension that followed made effectual by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Let me say that again. The good news is that God has in his Son 
accomplished. Now, that's a very important word. He has accomplished. All counterfeit Christianity will tell you that Jesus did all that he could do, and now it's somehow up to you to complete the circle. It will tell you that somehow Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father so that salvation for you could be made possible. But ultimately, it's up to you. So underline that word in your mind, accomplished. God has in his Son accomplished reconciliation by the cross and resurrection and ascension, which was made effectual by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now that's a very important point, and you'll see why as we go through this series. God's purpose for humanity has been fulfilled or accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the humanizing, if you will, God becoming human, taking on human flesh, fully human, fully God. And so that he is now our brother. He is our elder brother. We are related to him on a human level. And what God intends for us as our humanity, he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What God intended for our humanity, which was waylaid and short-circuited in the fall of Adam, has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. I can't stress that enough. God's purpose to create a people for his own glory who share in his holiness and display his character in their relationships with each other and with creation, by the way, has been accomplished in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus as made effective by the gift of the Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit is the evidence now that the future kingdom age, the new creation, the new covenant era, has begun. The Holy Spirit is the eschatological spirit. Now, don't let that phrase intimidate you. We've gotten so used to advocating our responsibility by, by conceding to experts professional seminarians who walk around in long robes and use big words and assume and relate to you as if they have knowledge and powers that you could never own, and so you just have to accept what they say and do. Now, I'm here to equip you. And one of the things I'm here to equip you for is to give you some language, give you some terminology that every Christian should be aware of, should just be operative in their life. So I'm not here to turn you into a scholar. I'm here to help equip you so that you can grow into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ so that Christ will be formed in you. So, the Spirit is the eschatological Spirit, meaning the presence, the return of the presence of God 
the return of the presence of God that was expected by every good Jew that was to occur at the end of this age has already been affected at Pentecost. So, the eschatological return of the presence of God has been inaugurated by the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, if you haven't heard that before, or you seldom hear that, it's because the Spirit is largely marginalized and set aside in most Protestant and Catholic teaching. I mean, the Holy Spirit is given, He is given uh, uh, place in the creeds, in the liturgy, and he is spoken of in a generalized way, but, but we seldom have ever taught who the Holy Spirit is in our life, what he does in our life, and his importance in the work of, of salvation. And in the daily walk of the Christian. So, this present evil age has been judged. And the coming age has been inaugurated for us and will be fully realized when Christ is revealed from heaven at his second coming. What I want you to hear today is this. Christ, Jesus Christ, now in his glorified state, represents the end purpose also for all who are in him. Now, Jesus is our future. Regardless of what your future may be in your marriage, in your family, in your career, in your own health circumstances, there's a grander, more transcendent future at work in your life. And that future is that you will be glorified someday, just as Jesus is glorified now. Romans eight twenty six through 30. Read it, if you will, on your time. That those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also sanctified. And so on. And those he also glorified is the final work of salvation. So justification is not even an end. It's glorification that is our end. Now that's good news, folks. <laughs> that means that there's a spirit, the spirit of God is at work within you now. There's a work that's going on in you now that's intended to fully redeem you in your humanity. I had the occasion recently to hear somebody speaking of someone who had just recently passed away, and they referred to this person as now being an eternal rest. And I thought, well, no. <laughs> eternal rest would mean that there's no resurrection awaiting us for, the, for those uh, believers and unbelievers, by the way. No, we may enter rest with the Lord when we pass away before his return, if we do. But it is not an eternal rest in the sense that we just fall asleep and stay asleep. 
No, no, we we die. If we die today, we go to be with the Lord. We go to be in his presence. But there's coming a day when our bodies will be resurrected, where there will be a, a, a general resurrection of the good and of the evil. And there will be a final judgment. What I'm saying to you today is that that judgment for you who are in Christ is predicated on something that God has already accomplished in his Son on your behalf. And by his resurrection, you are certain, because you are in him, to be resurrected to eternal life. So the work that is in you, the work that is in you is a work of the Spirit who gives life. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation. And Paul's speaking of an eschatological condemnation there, the final judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now, that brings us to this point then that we have to understand that's the gospel. And so by the power of the Spirit then, we are busy daily bringing our conduct, and this is a very important piece, bringing our conduct into accord with this great eschatological reality in the present moment. And it's, it's on this basis that we relate to God, we relate to each other, and we relate to ourselves as we await the consummation of all things. Which, by the way, is nearer today than when we first believed. So where you come to Christ in a broken state, and all of us do, if you've had some severe trauma in your life, some severe complex trauma, or some uh, traumatic event that is still haunting you, and it's affected your ability to form meaningful relationships, and it's even led to some form of either uh, substance abuse, substance addiction, or um, process addiction, nonetheless, you have hope. There is a solution from the pollution of sin. And while we'll not be free from the presence of sin before Christ returns, we certainly can be free of its pollution and its penalty today. And so we have identity in Christ. We have our purpose in Christ. And we have hope, genuine hope in Christ. The glorified Christ is our hope that we too, when we shall see him, it tells us in 1 John 3, 3, we shall, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies themselves even as he is pure. And we purify ourselves not by some legalistic routine, not by going to confession, not by walking on glass, not by flagellating ourselves. We purify ourselves by walking by the Spirit. Listen, you can't walk by the Spirit and sin at the same time. It's just, it, won't, it can't happen. When we cave into sin, if we cave into temptation, it's because we failed to walk in the Spirit. And that's really the failure at that moment. 
So, wholeness in this life in character and wholeness in our body in the consummation of all things. The reason I just said all that in preface to this episode of the worship that God rejects is because everything I've just said is the gospel of life. That's the outline of the gospel of life. What I want you to realize, and I hope that you can hear and separate from, is this alternative to that. An alternative that that Saul in 1 Samuel 15 represents in our present day. A form of pseudo-obedience manifested by an alternative worship that God rejects. A pseudo-obedience manifested in its alternative form of worship that God rejects, and which defines, tragically, most of what calls itself Christianity in America today. It makes sense, doesn't it? Suddenly things start making sense. When I teach this in my counseling office, and if I have a chance to speak in different places, suddenly the light starts coming on for people. Well, they're beginning to realize now why they have been in the church for 20 years and has been so lifeless. Why? They begin to realize why their lives have failed to be transformed. You have to have a transforming gospel to be transformed. You have to have the power of the Spirit working through the Scriptures to be transformed. And Paul warned us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days, the average Christian will look just like the average unbeliever, with one exception, that the average Christian will be participating in a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. Please uh, hear what I just said. Because the chances are extremely high that that's precisely what you're engaged in. A form of godliness that denies the power thereof. You're involved in a ministry that wounds instead of heals. A ministry that kills instead of gives life and yet remains the dominant ministry within American Christianity. Indeed, it is known as Christianity, but it is not. Rather, it is a largely bewitched population of people calling themselves Christians who are following a largely false clergy and leadership, celebrity pastors, which can include genuine believers as well as false believers who subscribe to a modified version of the gospel and a modified version of the Great Commission, all designed to accommodate the agenda of men. Just as did Saul. And God rejects it. What if, what if God rejects 
not only the gospel you're hearing and condemns it, curses it, and rejects the worship to which you subscribe on Sunday mornings or whenever you do it, and you don't even know it, I can promise you that you're feeling the effects of it. There's a large megachurch down the street from where I live, and they have a, quote, night of worship, end quote. Which means they largely appeal to the younger people in the church. And they gather together and they dim the lights in the sanctuary and they illuminate the stage and they get professional musicians up on the stage. And in the backdrop, they have a big screen with lots of graphics and lots of really cool things happening. And, and there's a real ambiance that's created. And then if there's loud music, there's repetitious choruses going on, and people stand up, and they, they kind of move back and forth, and they rock around, and the women are swinging their hips, and they're waving their arms, and this goes on for an hour and a half. And they call that a night of worship. And this is a mega church that probably has 3,000 members, a $10 million annual budget. And they call that worship. What I call it is more akin to the golden calf. Where the people rose up to play. And act out. And I'm telling you, God rejects it. It is not New Testament worship. It's something akin to some other form of religion, but it's not Christian worship. And they can get together. And I understand. I understand the pastor and the elders, they all they, they put it together because it's popular. It's cool. It's a hip thing to go there and participate. And you may have some experience. You may have some genuine experience. Some true experience. It's not legitimate, but it's true. You're actually experiencing an alternative state of mind. An altered state of mind. Excuse me, is what I meant to say. An altered state of mind. But if you think that's the presence of God that you're experiencing, you're kidding yourself. I grew up playing music in rock bands. I've been in concerts, both before and after, since I've become a Christian, and I understand how that concert atmosphere works people up. This is some kind of altar. If they, if you think that's worship, you're kidding yourself. It's not. It was, but most importantly, God rejects it. Okay. That's just my introduction. <laughs> I told you uh, in episode one that this is going to be an in-depth study. It's going to be a very important study, and you're going to need to take some time and uh, uh, be prepared to dig in a little bit. This is not a devotional study. This isn't going to be a thing where we just um, take a few verses and talk about in a way that makes you feel good, and then we're done. Uh People do that every day, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but uh, it, it's not helping them. 
It's not bringing them into maturity or wholeness. So let me begin by just reminding you of 1 Samuel 15. If you haven't read that chapter, I encourage you to do so. 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. That was the opening line in 1 Samuel 15. Verse 1. Verse 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to give you an outline. This is what the Lord of armies says. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and that he obstructed him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and completely destroy everything that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That was his mission. So let's begin today by being very clear as to the nature of Saul's sin. First of all, we can acknowledge that Saul heard the voice of the Lord through Samuel. Secondly, he initially responded and went on the mission. So far, so good. Just like so many people today initially hear the voice of the Lord in the gospel, then they respond to that voice, they act in faith, they have an experience with the Spirit, and they become regenerate, genuine Christians. So far, so good. And then we learn a little bit later in the story that he showed kindness to a group of people called the Kenites, which was a very commendable act. He warned these people to get away from the Malachites. I'm about to destroy them. And you don't have to be a part of that because you showed Israel kindness when they came up out of Egypt. So I don't want you to suffer the Amalekites' fate. So that was a commendable act on the part of Saul. Again, so far, so good. And that's what happens today also in the mission of the churches, is that we have a so far, so good, or good as far as it goes type of mission happening. And then Saul completely destroyed the Amalekites. That is, the people. And he also destroyed the weak and the despicable livestock. Again, so far, so good. And then he and the people, and here's where it turned, he and the people modified the word of the Lord given through Samuel in order to accommodate their own agenda. I want you to be very clear about that. They modified the word of the Lord in order to accommodate their own agenda. In this case, it was a lust for honor and greed. And that meant that they had to introduce an alternative form of worship as well. They had to rationalize it. They had to to spiritualize their lust and their greed. And if there's any 
question as to whether we have that happening in our American churches and the hyper-charismatic world and even the, amongst the Protestant traditionalists. Uh, just turn on the TV. Go buy a book from any local Christian bookstore or on Amazon.com. Read it, and you'll soon, le soon learn that there is a tremendous lust for celebrity and honor amongst Christian leaders today. Not to mention greed. And so they introduced an alternative form of worship to accommodate that, just like Saul did. And then, but here's the kicker. Saul presented himself to Samuel as being wholly faithful to the voice of the Lord. Saul didn't act out in his self-willed way, in his pseudo-obedience, and then realize what he did, which would have been the godly sorrow, and came to Samuel and repented and said, Oh, Samuel, I've blown it. I really, I really failed to keep the word of the Lord. No. He, he was verbose and and uh, very proud of the fact when he met up with Samuel the first time and said, and he told Samuel, oh, you know, it's greetings to you who belong to the Lord. And I did exactly what God wanted me to do. I fulfilled the mission. So there's this, this, this mentality in the contemporary heirs of Saul that they modify the word of the Lord in order to accommodate their own agenda and then they present themselves to you and to the world as being a faithful church, a faithful leader, fully obeying the voice of the Lord. They take their little human agenda by which they, they modified the Lord in order to make room for modified the word of the Lord to make room for, and then they present it to you as being God's truth. So Saul heard the voice of the Lord. He heard it clearly. And then he acted to modify the voice of the Lord, but represented himself as faithful to the voice of the Lord. So you see, this is different than the the uh, idolatry, the blatant idolatry which also plagued Israel. This is different from Joshua calling the people to choose whom they will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. And it's different than Elijah calling the people to choose, either from Baal, the false god of Baal, or serve Yahweh. There was a clear choice there. This is different this is a little different because here there is no clear, blatant rejection of the Lord in, in favor of a false god. That's bad enough, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that Saul modified the command of God in order to accommodate his own agenda and the agenda of the people, 
but then represented himself as being wholly faithful. It was a grand delusion, a grand deception. It was, in fact, spiritual gaslighting. Somebody with discernment, like Samuel, would have said, What have you done? But Saul attempted to gaslight Samuel and say, What? Uh, what? 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 I, I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did. I did. I destroyed the Amalekites. I, I brought back Agag. And then uh, we brought back the, the people, took all the best of the, of the livestock for which, so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. What's the problem, Samuel? I did, I did keep the, the, the commission. I did obey the voice of the Lord. And any lesser man than Samuel might have said, well, okay, maybe I'm just being extreme. Maybe I'm being too rigid. Maybe Saul's attempt to gaslight Samuel would have made Samuel feel like he was crazy for even questioning Saul. After all, he's the king. And he did mostly obey. So maybe the problems with Samuel's perception. See, and that's how you will be made to feel too. If you're in one of these churches, if you're following one of these celebrity pastors, one of these Saul-like pastors or, or a group of elders who, who are modifying the word of the Lord in order to teach you tithing, in order to teach you that Sunday is the Sabbath, in order to teach you that moss pit concert level worship is worship. And if you question it, you'll you'll be called on the carpet. You you you'll be called divisive. You'll be told that somehow you're the problem. That you're you're just being in rebellion. You need to repent. And if you're not trusting the word of God, if you're not tr- if you're not clear about the word of God, and if you're not clear about the voice of the Spirit and your discernment, you will be taken in and made to feel shame for questioning their disobedience. This is very important. This is why this series is so very important to you and why I am so impassioned to work day and night to exegete this text properly so that you can be equipped to say no to this kind of pseudo-obedience and worship in the church today. What happened? What happened when Saul tried to uh, gaslight Samuel? We read it in verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! Isn't that great? Stop! And let me inform you of what the Lord said to me last night. Samuel was not going to be talked into Saul's own delusionary tactics. And nor should you, nor should you be talked in to some form of delusional obedience, some form of pseudo-obedience, some form of alternative, unbiblical worship, so that your pastor 
or pastors or your elders or your leaders can acquire uh, honor to themselves and teach some kind of a false doctrine of tithing, mandatory tithing tied to Malachi chapter 3 or that Sunday is the Sabbath or that you must drink wine in the communion or that you must go to a priest for absolution or that somehow the clergy has greater powers than you do as an individual believer or that you must go to a building to worship and so on and so on and so on. Now let me conclude by let's become equally clear then as to how God responded to Saul's actions. We see how Saul uh, acted and we see how Samuel responded to those actions. He wasn't taken in by it. In fact, what Samuel did is he grieved. It says in verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was furious, distressed, and cried out to the Lord all night. My fondest prayer and hope is that by the time you end this series with me, you too will have been equipped, you will have sharpened your discernment so that when you come up against what is so prevalent in the churches today, this pseudo-obedience and this alternative form of worship that God rejects, that you will come to grieve. You may even become furious. And you may cry out to the Lord, I know that I have not shared the depth that Samuel expresses here, but I feel it, and I hope you do too. I hope you're getting fed up of putting up with this kind of silly, unbiblical nonsense that produces hypocrisy, scandals, exploitation, embezzlement, greed, sexual immorality, personality cults, all in the name of Christianity. So let's be clear about how God responds. God regarded Saul's presumption as turning back from following him and not carrying out his commands. Remember, I said in the first episode that God's not interested in, in almost obedience. He's not interested in mostly obedience. Now, don't get neurotic about that. <laughs> don't start scraping your psyche looking for ways that you've been disobedient. I'll explain to you in, the, in a future episode what we are talking about when we're talking about obedience. I mentioned to you in the first episode that it was about obeying, seeing things as God sees them, and ordering your conduct accordingly. But there's even a greater application to that, and it has to do with understanding the priesthood of Jesus in your life. So be calm on that point for now. So... 
God regarded Saul's presumption as, in fact, turning back from following him and not carrying out his commands. His almost obedience, God said, you've turned back from following me and have not carried out my commands. Period. God did not commend, hear me now, God did not commend Saul for partial obedience. He did not credit him for partial, mostly obedient behavior, but regarded it as an utter rejection of the divine command. God equated Saul's alternative form of worship, which resulted as a result of his pseudo-obedience, his rebellion, as, in fact, rebellion and insubordination. God said, your rebellion and your divination through Samuel is divination, false religion, and idolatry. No better. No better. Think of that. That's why I asked you when we first started this series, what if your pastor, your elders, your worship leaders, and your uh, denomination, your religious tradition, was found to be guilty of witchcraft and idolatry? How would that affect you? But I hope you're hearing me, folks. The Word of God is speaking to you prophetically. The Word of God is speaking to me prophetically. I'm not a prophet. The prophecy is in the Word of God. The prophetic Word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. All we got to do is read it in its context, prayerfully, contextually, and we'll hear it. So God equated Saul's alternative worship as rebellion and insubordination, divination, false religion, and idolatry, and an utter rejection of his word. And then God rejected Saul as king. Let me just tell you, if you have a pastor or a celebrity pastor that you just love to listen to and follow, but he's teaching you some form of pseudo-obedience and some form of prescribing some form of alternative worship so as to accommodate his own interests and his own agenda, you have to understand God rejects that man or woman. You may be listening today this week, certainly Sunday morning, to a personality who's popular, who's ingratiating, who's successful, but someone whom God rejects. So let me close now with this thought. There is religion in the world that has modified the word of the Lord to accommodate a human agenda. And it offers an alternative form of worship, a worship that God rejects. And God rejects the leaders of that religion as well. And the day is coming, beloved, the day is coming when all of this will be fully exposed and judged. And this is a call to you from the text to come out. Be as Samuel. 
Don't be a Saul. Be grieved. Be furious if necessary. I listen. I counsel people who are uh, suffering from spiritual abuse. I've seen the firsthand the toxic, even deadly. Do you know that there are people who complete suicide over bad theology? Do you know there are people who give into addiction because of their bad theology? You know, there are people who go through divorce and can't stay married to save their life around the third, fourth, and fifth marriage because they have bad theology. This is a shooting war, folks. This is, this is serious, sobering stuff. But the good news is, is that the gospel stands that God, let God be true and every man a liar, though every man be a liar, which is pretty much what we're stuck with today. <laughs> there are good men and there are good women who are teaching the truth today. Thanks be to God. God has always reserved a remnant. What I, My goal here is to help you recognize those who are not and to come out from among them and find the wholeness, the righteousness, the peace, and the joy, which is your spiritual birthright in Christ. And so the you and your marriages and your families, or if you're single, your life as a single person, can find new depth of meaning in Christ, new depth of wholeness, new joy and contentment in your relationships with your children, your parents, your family, and those others with whom you choose to form relationships with, that they're meaningful, they're substantive, they're joyous. Well, we'll pause there now. May the Lord strengthen you and keep you in his grace until we get into episode three. I do hope you stick with this series. The next time we're together, we're going to talk about um, the, the, the um, let's see. We're going to put this series into context. We're going to look at some of the other ways in Scripture that this kind of behavior has occurred. But then we're going to do some serious application from church history and the contemporary church life. So please come back. Please stick with it. I think it's very important to you. It's worth your time. I've worked hard to make it worth your time. I've worked hard, frankly, to make it worth my time. And it is benefiting my wife and family immensely, those who are close to me. It's benefiting my fellowship, fellowship group. And so we're excited to share these things with you. And, I, and we are looking forward to the Lord's blessing being great as we do. Amen.